So this continued account of Moses and the nation of Israel, uh, the things that they're going through, uh, in particular, we now are going to look at the law concerning vows. And uh, you might think, well, why would we even need to know about that? There are some specifics that the Lord requires, and there are some things that we see even about our life today uh, in this passage. Verse 1 of Numbers 30 says, Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself, by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So uh, there's a couple of ideas within this. The first of which is, uh, you know, making a commitment to the Lord. If you are, you know, making a vow to the Lord, making a commitment to the Lord, the Lord wants you to follow through with that. Secondly, if you bind yourself in an agreement, uh, then you are committed to that. Now, there's something to understand about making a vow to the Lord or making an agreement. Uh, we see the scripture telling us that the ones who are pleasing to the Lord, and there's a list of their characteristics, in that is the one who would swear even to his own hurt. If you make a commitment, the follow-through is significantly important. As a believer, you know, the Lord isn't saying you have to commit to certain things. Uh, you know, there are those commitments we have to make as far as repenting of our sin and turning to the Lord. We can have great discussions on all of those particulars. What I'm trying to say is the Lord doesn't require things of us that are so far above and beyond that it's impossible to accomplish. You know, an example in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, uh, there are a number of people, Barnabas included, who are selling everything that they have and they're giving it to the church. A big part of that motivation is they heard Jesus Christ's words, literally standing in his presence as he ascended into heaven, and the angels are telling them, the same way you've seen him go, he's going to return. So they were looking for his return at any moment. So all of their earthly possessions uh, were meaningless in their minds. Christ was going to return any moment. Why did we need to hang on to things? Let's all just live together communally. I've talked recently about the fact that a great many people began to take advantage of the church because of that, quit their jobs, stop paying their bills, just let the church feed them. The church has to then make rules about the people they will take care of and the people they won't take care of. What I'm driving at is then we see Ananias and Sapphira come along and they sell a piece of property in the same way that Barnabas had done, but they present a portion of the proceeds to the apostles and they make the great claim of this is the entire sum of money that we've given to the Lord. Peter, in the confrontation, makes the point of, wasn't that property yours? And the answer is obviously yes. Did the Lord require that you sell it? And the answer is obviously no. When you had the sum of money, wasn't that whole thing yours? The answer is yes. 
Did the require, Lord require you to give the whole sum? No. The level of commitment that we're making that has to do with our own choices, that's our own choice. You, you, you can weigh out what it is that the Lord is calling you to do and even whether you're capable of fulfilling that. The point is, if you've made the commitment, then you need to stand by it, even if it hurts. And that's going to be very pleasing to the Lord. And there's a great reward in the process. Just latching on to whatever it is the Lord has called you to do. And in that, he actually gives us many precepts in the scripture about start small. Make the small commitment. Right? He who is faithful in the small things will be granted more. Start with something small. Make the commitment. Follow through. See the fact that you're going to be tested. See the fact that it's going to be difficult. You know, we do this crazy thing, right? Uh, we sink, we flounder, we fail. We come to the Lord in repentance. He speaks to our hearts and suddenly now we're making these great flamboyant promises to God, right? From now on, I'm going to get up before sunrise, and I'm going to spend three hours in the Word, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to fast every day, and when the alarm clock goes off the next morning, we just shut it right off. Commitment's over. You know, very first test comes, and we are done. Listen, that actually leads to a tremendous level of spiritual failure. It isn't just I made that small commitment and I failed at it. It has a very damaging effect upon our relationship with the Lord. Right? Not that the Lord is offended by that, right? He knew that we lose all of our confidence. We're drained, right, of the victory. It's not coincidental, you guys, that we go from Numbers chapter 30 and we turn the page and we get to Numbers chapter 31 and there the Lord is saying, okay, it's time to go eradicate the Midianites. You're going to make a vow to the Lord here and then warfare is the very next thing that you see. Okay? You make a commitment to the Lord, you can guarantee you're going to get punched right in the mouth next thing. It's, it's not going to be easy. You're going, to, you're going to have to stand your ground. You're going to have to contend with it. You're going to say, oh, yeah, from now on, I'm taking this night off every week, and I'm going to be involved in ministry. And the very next thing is your boss saying, hey, I'm going to have to have you work uh, that night every week. Are, are you going to say to your boss, I've made a commitment, and I need to follow through with that? Are you going to stand up and hold your ground to those things? You can guarantee the tests are going to come. So weigh out carefully beforehand whether you've got the commitment to follow through. And it's okay to say, I'm really not capable of that. I'm, I'm, I really shouldn't commit myself to this thing because I understand the level of challenge and strain and you know exertion that it's going to take for me to follow through. If you're going to make the vow, then do it in a serious way. Jesus and the Sermon of the Mount says it very simplistically in a way that it really might help you understand and apply this in a New Testament sense of things. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 33, 
<coughs> Jesus <coughs> referencing actually Numbers chapter 30 says again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no, no. And notice this. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Okay, There is a few things about that that are really quite significant. Uh, you know, we don't swear by these particular things the way that the Jews do. But, but we have very similar practices, right? We'll say things like, I swear on a stack of Bibles. Like, that's going to make a difference, right? I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on my child's life. I swear on what fill in the blank, right? The scripture literally just said to us, if we add to the yes or the no, that is from the devil himself. Remember that the next time it's about to come out of your mouth, right? Also remember when it comes out of someone else's mouth to you. <laughs> remember that. Did you do this? No, I swear to God. Oh, darn it. I wish you hadn't done that. You're revealing to me that what you're saying is probably not true. You know, the fact that you're attaching to it some vow on oath is, is, is a revelation that you're not being honest. You know, maybe you're just not being honest with yourself. Be much better just say yes or no to make your commitment or your denial as clear as that. You don't need to add anything to it. And, and within that, what will occur is your name will gain the repetition or the reputation of being trustworthy. If you say no, then it's no. If you say yes, then it's yes. That's the end of the discussion. You're going to be much more predictable in the circumstances. I, I am a person, maybe it's just sort of human error, who when asked to commit to things, I will very often jump to the yes automatically. And uh, over the years, I have had to learn the painful process of that not only diminishes my credibility if I cannot follow through, but because people look at me as a Christian and as, as a pastor, that when I fail, it's reflected upon my Lord. It's reflected upon our faith. It's actually reflected upon you when I make commitment and don't follow through. So, so I can tell you this, you may even have experienced it with me. <clears throat> hey, Will, can you help me? Yeah, absolutely. And then just a second later, you know, wait a minute, now that I think about that. Being honest in the moment. It's okay to retract, right? The Lord isn't, you know, making something. It's much better to say, you know, I, I, I made that statement. I made that commitment without thinking about it. I, I have to really consider what's involved. I have to consider the fact that my week is already, you know, full to overflowing. How in the world do I think that I can fit that, you know, four, six, eight hour project into the midst of this? 
and and then two right there in the moment, right? Much better for somebody in the moment to say to you, I, I can't follow through with that. Than it is you've waited, you know, all these days, all this time, and you're expecting that that person is going to follow through, and then they just don't show up. They don't follow through with the commitment. Uh, that failure process that comes in, I say it diminishes us. Why? Because it, it robs us of our commitment and our confidence in the process. I, I, I've had many people come and say, I'd like to get involved in the ministry. And the first thing I say is, have you prayed about it? You've recognized the need. You've recognized how you might potentially fit into the need. But have you spent time praying about it? And if I get the sense, even from their answer, oh, yes, I pray. If I get the sense that maybe they haven't, I'll insist upon them. I need you to pray. Because you can guarantee there's going to be an intense level of attack that's going to come. And you're going to need to be committed to following through even though the attack has come. And if you don't follow through, if you fail in the process, that dramatic effect that follows upon your relationship with the Lord. I'm not looking at the person saying, you're not trustworthy. I'm looking at the person saying to them, I don't want you to damage your relationship with the Lord. It'd be much better if you took the time and walked through your own mental process to understand Am I supposed to make this commitment so that you don't hurt yourself and your relationship with the Lord? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Take the time to hear from the Lord. Just rec right? Just recognizing that there's a need and volunteering yourself into the midst of that, the failure that comes when you fall away from it lets everything down in the process. Much better that you say, I recognize the need, but I can't commit myself. So in recognizing the need, I will dedicate myself to prayer. I'll pray that that need is fulfilled. I'll pray that the Lord would send someone who's capable. That, you guys have to understand how valuable that is. Supporting ministry in prayer. You know, praying for years, Lord, here's this need in our church, in our community. Please send someone. And eventually, over time, the Lord may say, hey, you've been the one bringing this to me for all this time. Don't you think it's time you step to the plate? Hearing from the Lord, spending the time in prayer. You may be pleasantly surprised and turn around and there's a person stepping into that role and fulfilling that work and fulfilling that need. You know, I've had a tremendous uh, heart to see something happen in Rockland, Maine for a long time. I don't know what it is about Rockland. I, I just, I got this fixation with, I, I want to see a, a Calvary Chapel there, a verse-by-verse -verse Bible study happening in that area. Casey Hill and I were down at his grandmother's for quite a period of time leading Bible studies until, you know, she could no longer have us in her home. And then she went home to be with the Lord, praise God, you know. And now there's a brother down there, came out of Calvary Chapel, Belfast. We're very blessed by the fact that Travis is down there and leading a Bible study. You know, we're, we're seeing our desire fulfilled 
as we have prayed for those circumstances all these years. So consider how the Lord might be speaking to you about your yes being yes and your no being no and where that might come into play. Now he gets into some particulars in verse 3. Or if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth. So we have those two specific qualifiers here. You're talking about a young woman who's still under the authority and the care of her father. And her father hears uh, her vow and the agreement by which she has bound herself. And her father holds his peace then all her vows shall stand, and every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. But if the father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will release her because her father overruled her. Uh, the authority of parents over children. Okay. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, well, that's yesteryear, you know. Kids today, what are you going to do? Guess what? Parents, let me just give you some insight here. You have authority over your children. Number one, biblically. Number two, legally. Within our culture, within our nation, within our state. You say, nope, they're a teenager. And at school, their teachers tell them that, you know, they're independent and they don't have to inquire of me and they can do. That's all lies. I don't know if you're aware of that. Okay. If they're a teenager and they're living in your house, if they are in a car accident and they injure people, guess who's responsible? You are. Okay. You have authority by law to... Bring them under your authority. A phone call years ago from parents, panicked, middle of the night, our daughter, and we just found out, and she's over at this house drinking, and what are we going to do? I said, call the cops and go to that house. They were like, what? I said, yeah, man, the cops, if, if you have evidence that your daughter is in that house, she's underage, and she's drinking alcohol, then someone's breaking the law and supplying your daughter with alcohol, the cops will escort you into that house. Really? Yes. I said, you know, they'll also escort her home for you and put her in bed if you ask them. And they were like, no, that's literally what they did. They met the police. They drove to the house. The police officers said, what evidence do you have? They showed them the photograph on the phone. This is our daughter with her friend drinking at this house. They said, no problem. And they just walked right up to the front door, didn't even knock, opened the door, walked right inside. Where is this young woman? And now all these teenagers are standing around, chucking their beers and freaking out and <clears throat> walked right upstairs, took her out in handcuffs, right out to the cruiser, drove her home in the cruiser. Parents followed, escorted her inside up into her bedroom and said, it's time for bed. That happened locally right here. No more problems. Not only from that young woman, but a whole bunch of teenagers in that school we're like, wow, 
We thought we had authority over ourselves. All of our friends told us that we could just call, you know, DHS. No. You're responsible for your children, and you do not want to listen to the lies of our culture that are being told to our children. We have authority. We, we are the ones that are responsible to them. You know, I had the agreement with my daughters. Look, <clears throat> you can live at home as long as you want. While you live at home, I make the rules. As long as you are in school, whatever schooling that may be, I'll even pay all the bills. You get a job, you're not going to school, you'll be required to pay some of those bills on a minor scale. But where this really ran into the biggest problem was when I was saying, nope, you're going to be home by 11 o'clock. Well, I'm 20 years now coming because I want to go to sleep. That's why. I need to know where you are. I can't, I can't lie awake thinking about that anymore. You have to be home. Call the shots as long as you are living in my home. You want to live independently? Then you're going to have to pay all the bills to live independently. You know? and, then, and then I won't worry anywhere near as much. You get your own life. We, as believers, need to have a much more clear godly frame of mind about what it means to have children and to make these type of decisions. We are responsible. We are responsible. Forget what the laws do, right? The laws are rapidly shifting. There is an ultimate authority of God. And we do have to answer to him for how we've conducted ourselves. In this culture, in this setting, father can override her agreements. You know, she comes home with, Dad, I just bought a chariot. <laughs> Here's my monthly payment. No, not going to happen. going to override that. You can take that back because I don't agree with it. Why? Because if you fail then I'm going to have to pick up the tab. If you aren't capable of being here, when I am dependent upon you being here, then I can override what's being said in that environment. Verse 6, if indeed she takes a husband while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she bound herself and her husband here, hears it and makes no response on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand, and her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, right? You can't wait until the situation has deteriorated and say, you know, I didn't like that back when I heard it, and so I hereby override that. No. You need to have the judgment and make the call in the circumstances. He shall Make void her vow, which she took, and what she uttered with her lips, by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. Now, I want to give two perspectives here. Even in our modern day, <clears throat> the Lord wants husbands to be the head of the household. Okay, But he didn't call women to be the doormat of men. Right. So very often, 
we point to Proverbs chapter 31 and we go, oh, see, look at the honorable woman there. Isn't her character wonderful? I want to point out one more time. The woman in Proverbs chapter 31 is a businesswoman. She owns her own fields. She buys her own fields. She has her own products that she manufactures. She sells them. She keeps the profit for herself. And she hires and fires employees based upon her own decision-making process. Her husband's not engaged in any of that. Not engaged in any of that. And the scripture calls her honorable. Okay? Women in the scripture are allowed to function independently from even their own husbands. But husbands are called to be the head of their household. So where this applies is when a wife might be making a decision that affects the household. And the husband has to say, sorry, we cannot make that decision. Why? Because it's a we decision. We're bound together in this household, and as the head of the household, I recognize that isn't something that we're going to be able to fulfill. This goes right back to the vows. The vows that a household are making need to be held by the husband. Why? Because in the end, same reason. He's going to be the one who has to ultimately answer for it. You make a financial commitment that the household is not capable of sustaining. In the end, the husband needs to be the final. Well, you know, the wife makes more money than the husband. And blah. Well, look, if the wife wants to go make that decision completely on her own, the scripture supports that concept. Read Proverbs 31 again. But if it's a thing that would bind him into the agreement, whatever it might be, then the husband has the right, biblically, to say, I need to make this decision. Again, keep in mind, brothers, the Lord doesn't ever give us permission to rule over our wives with cruelty. There has to be gentle understanding in the process. There has to be very negotiable attitudes within every single one of us. Hear what might be said. Understand what might be presented. And you need to make your presentation in return in a very godly way. And in the end, the husband needs to be the head of his own household. There are going to be disagreements. <clears throat> then it needs to be on the front end. You can't hold on to it. Let the agreement be made. <clears throat> and then, like I said, it falls apart months later. And then lose your mind with, I knew this was going to end up terrible. And then torture the relationship. It needs to be that you are addressing these situations on the front end. You know, the attitude of the passive aggressive, right? Passively letting things transpire over and over again. And then when you're displeased with it much later, then being extremely aggressive about it. That's very ungodly. If you find something that needs to be addressed, do so in the beginning. Meet it head on with the gentility of Jesus Christ, with the thoughtfulness and the love that our Lord has for us, the way that graciousness works. Also, any vow of a widow or a divorced woman by which 
she has bound herself shall stand against her. <clears throat> so if a woman is alone and she's making these decisions, then she's going to have to stand by those decisions in verse 9. And think about this, sisters, right? As much as this sounds like you're being oppressed and held down, somebody else gets to answer for the decisions you make, right? You make a decision, yeah, we're going to commit to that. If you fall apart in this situation, that means your husband's going to pick up the tab. Your husband has to be the one who carries those things through to the finish line. Uh, so, so consider what you're doing in the we circumstances. We are bound together as one. A single woman has a different situation, and you need to consider carefully anything that you might bind yourself into. And, you know, this is obviously much more applicable at this time in these days. Verse 10, if she vowed in her husband's house and bound herself by an agreement. So we're talking about the divorced woman or the widow. <clears throat> by an agreement with an oath, and her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule her, then all her vows shall stand. And every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. And if her husband truly made them void in the day he heard them, then whatever proceeded from her lips concerning her vows or concerning the agreement binding her it shall not stand. Her husband was has made them void and the Lord will release her. You can't turn around and say, well, I made that commitment. I signed that document. You know, I, I got that mortgage when we were married. Now that we're divorced, I don't have to pay that off. The Lord is saying, no, you have to follow through with these things unless your husband overrode those. And that has to have happened before the situation. It can't be after he has departed or after he has passed away. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul or her husband may confirm. Or her husband may make it void. <clears throat> now, if her husband makes no response, whatever, to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or all the agreements that bind her, confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. But if he does make them void after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. So <clears throat> this issue of addressing it when it happens. Uh, Jesus, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, gives you know very similar explanation and it is within the legal terminology <clears throat> when he talks about if you find yourself on the way to court agree with your adversary while you're still on the way otherwise you could end up in court and the judge could weigh against you and turn you over to the officer and you be sent to prison until whatever the judgment is is completed be it time there or payments made while you still have time. I, I, I find a very detailed understanding of disagreements in all of what we're reading here and what Jesus is saying there. Deal with issues early on, right? <clears throat> if you recognize something's not right, 
Do not let that thing fester. Go and address it. Go and address what you see as potentially developing. Go and deal with what's going to be problematic. If you do not, if you do not, then what the Lord is saying is bringing it up after the fact is wrong. You're wrong in bringing it up after the fact if you did not address it in the moment. Right? <clears throat> Someone does you wrong. You let it pass. You're deeply offended. You've got all kinds of hurt, but you don't address the issue. Then later, that injury ends up creating much bigger problems, and now you want to explode. We're back to the issue of passive aggression. Uh, you need to deal with things on the front end. You know, uh, husbands and wives, you don't, you don't want to keep that like secret checklist. You know, you come in the house and they speak to you in such a way, you know, well, I'll just make note of that. <clears throat> and then later they don't do the thing you asked them. Well, then I'll also keep note of that. And then later on some other effects and I'll keep note of that. And now the day comes. Where, I don't know, you're overtired and who knows what else adds to your level of frustration and pow, you go off. And you go back to the beginning of the list. Yeah, well, when we got married, your mother and wow, really? That many years ago? Okay. Are you kidding? First Corinthians tells us love keeps no record of wrongs. No record of wrongs. Deal with things on the front end. If you do not, if you do not, then the scripture is saying you have no right to bring it up later. No right to bring it up later. You're in the wrong if you bring it up later. Right? If you address it on the front end, right? if we do this, this commitment you're making, this is going to burn us. I don't think you should do this. And oh, we're going to go ahead. And we get down the road and now it's burning us. You don't even have to say, I told you so, do you? Why? Because you addressed it on the front end. And now everybody's having to live it out. The Lord wants us, right? Keep short accounts. Deal with things in the beginning. Do not let things fester. This, this is a biblical principle, Old Testament, New Testament. That we need to recognize the Lord wants us to keep very short accounts. Very short accounts. Right? He does it with us. If, if we think about it, right? Nah, we're wandering. We're stepping into things we shouldn't. He addresses us right on the spot, doesn't he? We quickly brush him away if we're going to continue in it. And we just charge ahead into the problem. And you can hear the voice of God in your heart and in your mind saying, I've addressed this with you. I've told you where we're going to end up. When, so that when you end up raining, but the beautiful thing is, <clears throat> you got to think about this, right? His Holy Spirit does not bring that condemnation. We get to where... The, the sin, let's say, is now bringing out its fulfillment. Hey, he's not there condemning us. Hey, there's a profound difference between conviction and condemnation. The enemy is the one who delivers condemnation. 
The Lord will bring conviction to say, this is where we went wrong, and this is how we fix it. The enemy just says, you're worthless. You have to recognize the difference. The Lord keeps short accounts with us. Verse 16, these are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife, between a father and his daughter, in her youth, in her father's house. Numbers chapter 31, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. I want you, Moses, to go and lead this people into battle. Now listen. The battle that these people are being led into is literal, but it's very symbolic for us. These people are about to cross the Jordan River and begin a process of conquering their enemies. The Lord's going to do two things in this battle. He's going to teach them that he is very effective in battle. Not them, right? They're very effective in battle when he leads them. So he's going to teach them he is very effective in battle. Second thing he's going to do is he's going to enrich them tremendously in this process. We face the struggles. And it is a symbol of sin. If we will conquer the sin by allowing the Lord to lead us through the temptation, you learn in the process, God is very powerful in this battle that I'm engaged in. And the second thing you learn in the process is that you're incredibly enriched in the battle. Here, you're going to go, lead them into battle, and then you're going to be gathered to the Lord. So Moses spoke to the people saying, Arm some of yourselves for war. Let them go against the Midianites to take vengeance for the Lord on the Midian. A thousand from each tribe of all the tribes of Israel you shall send to war. So there's going to be 12,000 here. So <coughs> there were <laughs> recruited from the divisions of Israel, 1,000 from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Then Moses sent them to war, 1,000 from each tribe. He sent them to war with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the holy articles and the signal trumpets in his hand. And they warred against the Midianites, just as the Lord commanded Moses, and they killed all the males. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed. Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, Reba, the five kings of Midian. Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. And we'll talk about Balaam as a reminder here in just a few verses. <clears throat> this is because of what Balaam did in teaching the Midianites how to conquer the nation of Israel. He had been hired by King Balak to come and pronounce the curses. We read our way through all of those circumstances. And now the Lord is saying you've got to deal with the Midianites. Verse 9. The children of Israel took the women of Midian captive. What? It's crazy. Crazy that they did that. 
with their little ones and took as spoil all their cattle, all their flocks and all their goods. They also burned with fire all the cities where they dwelt and all their forts. And they took all the spoil and all the booty of man and beast. Well, I read through this and very often people respond about the vengeance of the Lord. Oh, war and murder and death. And this is just horrible. How could God ask for these things? And they'll often talk about, well, this is the God of the Old Testament. You have to read the New Testament to understand the God of the New Testament. You can't just take the public opinions about Jesus. You're going to see him in the book of Revelation, right? With his hair white as wool, his eyes like coals of fire, a sword that proceeds from his mouth. He slays all of his enemy, his feet like highly polished brass to trample out humanity like grapes. That's the New Testament God. Same God as the Old Testament. There is a song you may remember. It was called Turn, Turn, Turn. To Everything There Is a Season. It was originally written, written by Peter Seeger in the late 1950s. It was adapted by the American folk group the birds. The song reached number one on the U.S. Billboard chart on December 4th, 1965. The song was taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, where the scripture says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to love, verse 8 says, a time to hate a time of war, and a time of peace. For the nation of Israel, this is their time of war. And we may face times of war. We pray to God that our leadership is righteous, and when we go to war, it is for a just cause. But there are reasons to go to war. There are biblical, godly reasons to go to war. So we shouldn't think, oh, war, that's not Christian, not biblical. It very much is. It very much is. So continuing in verse 12, it says, Then they brought the captives, the booty, the spoil to Moses, to Eliezer the priest, to the congregation of the children of Israel, to the camp in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. See how close they are, you guys? Those of you that are familiar with this, right? Jericho's in sight at this point. And Moses, Eliezer, and the priests, all the leaders of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was angry with the officers of the army, with the captains over the thousands and the captains over hundreds who had come from the battle. He is angry because he sees a tremendous failure in their midst that he's about to address. Not because Moses is just an angry guy. He's angry in a justified way. Verse 15, Moses said to them, Have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And, the, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. I would ask you to put your bookmark there and turn back with me to Numbers chapter 25. I'm going to read nine verses here. 
to put this in context again. Numbers chapter 25. Balaam has come with Balak. He was supposed to pronounce the curses. He heard clearly from the Lord and only pronounced blessings upon the nation of Israel. But we just heard in Numbers chapter 31 verses 15 and 16 that Balaam gave them counsel as to how to cause the nation of Israel to stumble into sin so that now God himself would be opposed to them. Numbers chapter 25 verse 1 now Israel remained in Acacia Grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to sacrifice to their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, the, the false god Baal. The anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Jump down to verse 6. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren, a Midianite woman, in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of Israel. Think about how brazen their sin has to have become in order for them to conduct themselves in this way. Let me just bring this prostitute straight into where Moses and these men who are the leadership of the nation are able to see me do this. Clear sight of the leadership. So here they bring in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and we'll see why. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. He went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through. The man of Israel and the woman threw her body, so the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. Those who died in the plague were 24,000. This is why the Lord wants the nation of Israel to get rid of the Midianites. 24,000 Israelites died because of their sin. God isn't saying, I'm prejudiced, I'm xenophobic, I hate the Midianites, let's just kill them all. He's saying they are an incredibly wicked people who will lead you into idolatry and sexual sin, and they will destroy you as a people. You need to get rid of them. What do the men of Israel do? They keep the women. The women that they've been having sex with, they keep them alive. They make it possible for themselves to fall back into sin. It's no wonder that the Lord and Moses were told, I want you to send Phineas in with the nation of Israel when they go against the Midian. Why? Because he knows how to handle a javelin. He knows how to handle this situation. Look at verse 17 back in Numbers chapter 31 with me. Let's go back to verse 17. Now, therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known a man intimately. But keep alive for yourselves all the young girls who have not known a man intimately. These young men are going to be able to grow up. They're going to remember their fathers and the nation of Midian that they have come from. And they're going to have a patriotic heart 
towards their people and the way, the sinful ways of their people, and they're going to try to rise up against Israel. God says you need to purge that out of your midst. And any of these women who have already reached the age where they're sexually active means that they were probably engaged to some degree in the sin that Israel had conducted itself back in Numbers chapter 25. God says, purify this people. Get rid of all of the sin in their midst. I want to give you two references to support what we're looking at here. Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, Jesus speaking, said, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Yeah, it would be better to enter eternity maimed than to spend an eternity in hell. Eternity in the presence of God versus eternity separated from him. Verse 9, Jesus continues by saying, and if your eye causes you to sin, Pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes be cast into hell fire. Listen, if you're thinking, I am going to have to go home and gouge my eye out. There are so many things you can do before you get to that point. There are drastic steps to take before you ever consider that Jesus is not listen Jesus is not saying cut your hand off or gouge your eye out right he's saying to the human intelligence which comes from his mind and is implanted in the human mind look I'm telling you hell is at stake so there must be things you can do that might even seem drastic to you which would benefit you from not having this sin in your life. What is the sin? You figure it out. I'll tell you the thing, and, and I'll just say this generically, right? Because, you know, for some people, you should not have the internet. Period. End of discussion. You shouldn't have cable. There's a number of things, right? You should never enter a liquor store, some of us. You know, some of us should never take the prescription for pain reliever from the doctor. There are all kinds of things to consider. What is it that you need to cut off, gouge out, never have be part of your life? One of the first places that I learned this as a young Christian was there were certain friendships that needed to be cut off in my life. People that would cause me to sin. I mean, it was my sin, not theirs. Right? But it was supernaturally inspired. I'd be in the worst place I'd been in in years. And they call me up. Hey, what are you doing? Wow, I haven't heard from you in years. I just happen to be at the lowest place spiritually I've been since I surrendered my life to Christ. And I fall with them. I figured that out. The Holy Spirit taught me early on. One of those names, I, I was going to delete his name from my phone. And the Lord said to me as I was about to do it, that could sneak up on you. You delete his name, you wouldn't recognize the phone number. It rings, you might answer it. Leave the name in your phone, but put before the name, do not answer this call. That's what I put in as the contact name. I put in, do not answer this call, and then the person's name after that. 
And sure enough, it was like a year and a half later, and things were going terrible, and I was in a terrible spot, and right in the middle of my selfish, sinful, stupidity, phone rings. I look down, and it says, do not answer this call. And I'm thinking, well, that's really weird. <clears throat> and I'm about to press answer when I remember who it is. And I was shocked with, oh, my goodness. How supernatural is it that they they haven't spoken to me in all this time? And the day I'm in the worst place, here they are calling me. And then I understood the spiritual struggle that I was in. There are certain relationships I had to cut off, and they were painful. Close friends, not can't communicate with them, can't contact them, can't be around them. Because I'm going to stumble. My weakness, right? Not so much that they're bad. They're bad all the time. That I am weak. And I need to cut them off. Secondly, Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Paul said to the church at Rome, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. We leave things in place. We don't deal with things. We don't, you know, you know what the biggest problem is? We just don't pray. We hit the temptation and we don't call out to God. Sometimes it's an all-day prayer, isn't it? God, how do I deal with this here in the moment? And he just kind of carries you through the moment. And you're like, oh, thank goodness, that's passed. And five minutes later, it's right back. And it's intense all over again. And you have to say, Lord, how do I get rid of this? And he walks you through the next moment and the next moment and the next moment till you put your head on the pillow. But you put your head on the pillow in victory. Verse 19. And as for you, remain outside the camp seven days. So he's speaking to the men who have come back. I want you to put to death all of these people. And then I want you to remain outside the camp. For seven days, whoever has killed any person, whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives in the third day. And on the seventh day, purify every garment, everything made of leather, every woven, everything woven of goat's hair, everything made of wool. I want everything cleansed. Then Eliezer the priest said to the men of war who had gone to the battle, this is the ordinance of the law which the Lord commands Moses. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can endure fire, you shall put through fire, and it shall be clean, and it shall be purified with the water of purification. But all that cannot endure fire, you shall put through water. You shall wash your clothes on the seventh day and be clean, and afterward you may come into the camp. Fire, a symbol of God's judgment, it also literally purifies. They did not understand the microbial world the way that we do. Right? This is going to eliminate all kinds of disease and illness, and they're going to have that sense of the great effort that it goes through to take something that's worldly and bring it into a purification before the Lord. The fiery judgment and the washing by the water of God's word. These two symbols given to them here in this moment. So in verse 25, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, 
count up the plunder that was taken of man and beast, you and Eleazar the priest, with the chief fathers of the congregation, and divide the plunder into two parts, because those who took part in the war, who went out to battle, and all the congregation. And levy a tribute to the Lord on the men of war who went out to battle. One of every five hundred of the persons, the cattle, the donkeys, and the sheep, take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as a heave offering, meaning that it would be presented before the Lord, but then retained by Eleazar, the, the priesthood in general, offering to the Lord. And the children of Israel, half you shall take one of every 50 drawn from the persons, the cattle, the donkeys, the sheep, and all the livestock, and give them to the Levites who keep charge of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Moses and Eleazar, the priests, did as the Lord commanded Moses. So everyone in the nation of Israel is benefiting from this tremendous treasure that they've received in this battle. Verse 32 the booty remained, remaining from the plunder, which the men of war have taken, was 675,000 sheep. Wow. Massive amount. 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, 32,000 persons in all of women who had not known a man intimately. And the half, the portion for those who had gone out to war, was in number 337,500 sheep. The Lord's tribute of the sheep was 675. The cattle were 36,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 72. The donkeys were 30,500, of which the Lord's tribute was 61. The persons were 16,000, of which the Lord's tribute was 32 persons. So Moses gave the tribute, which was the Lord's heave offering to Eleazar the priest, as the Lord commanded Moses. Tremendous treasure in victory. No treasure in defeat. Understand that principle? When we surrender to Christ, there's tremendous treasure. Verse 42, from the children of Israel's half, which Moses separated from the men who fought, now the half belonging to the congregation was 337,500 sheep, 36,000 cattle, 30,500 donkeys, and 16,000 persons. And from the children of Israel's half, Moses took one of every 50 drawn from man and beast and gave them to the Levites who kept charge of the tabernacle of the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. This principle carries over. We'll see it later as David deals with Ziklag and the destruction there. Those who remain behind protecting the nation of Israel and their belongings receive reward, same or similar as those who go to battle. Verse 48, then the officers who were over thousands of the army, the captains over the thousands and the captains over hundreds came near to Moses. And they said to Moses, your servants have taken account of the men of war who are under our command and not 
a man of us is missing. Miraculous. Miraculous protection of the Lord. I want to give you the name of two movies. I would strongly encourage you to watch both of these. Above and Beyond is a movie about the creation of the Israeli Air Force. Really remarkable. It's docudrama style, uh, but really remarkable how the Lord has taken care of the nation of Israel in modern times. Okay, Not just in the ancient biblical times, but even up to today. And more importantly, the movie called Against All Odds. The subtitle to that is Israel Survives. Right? I'll give you one account in the movie of a squad of soldiers, Israeli soldiers that are fleeing their Arab attackers. And in the midst of their fleeing in the middle of the night, they realize they're in the middle of a minefield. They've run in trying to escape into a minefield and not seen the signs because it's the middle of the night. Now they realize they're in the minefield. They hunker down and they stay there and they're totally afraid that the sun's going to rise and then the Arabs are just going to be able to pick them off. In the midst of it, a massive sandstorm kicks up. They're praying for God to deliver them and all of the sand is blown off the desert floor and now they can see where every one of the mines is. The sand is all blown away and the mines are just sitting on top of the ground. They were able to just walk out. Okay, That's one example of the way that the Lord takes care of his own. Not one of them here in this passage was missing. Verse 50, Therefore, we have brought an offering for the Lord, what every man found of ornaments of gold, armlets, bracelets, signet rings, earrings, and necklaces to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. So Moses, Eliezer, the priest, received the gold from them, all the fashioned ornaments and all the gold of the offering that they offered to the Lord. From the captains of the thousands, the captains of hundreds, 16,750 shekels. The men of war had taken spoil, every man for himself. And Moses and Eliezer, the priest, received the gold from the captains of thousands of the hundreds and brought it into the tabernacle of meeting as a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord. Scripture tells us that he who is forgiven much loves much. When you realize what the Lord has spared you, there's a tr tremendously grateful attitude that just automatically comes. When we are honest and the realization of what the Lord has done for us causes us to want to give back to him. I pray to God every one of us would look honestly at what the Lord has done to preserve us. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are grateful for your love, grateful for your word, grateful for these examples, and we pray that you would help us Help us to be men and women who are truly, wholly surrendered to you. Lord, that we would face the battles, our own personal struggles, and look for your deliverance. That moment to moment, we would wait upon you. 
to see your victory in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.